Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Uh, first guest in a while. Always a good time to have Brandon Quidamon. Is this your third or fourth time on the show, Brandon? It's four. Is it four? I was going to say three. Could be three. Maybe, could be three. Maybe it was like a guest panel or something. Yeah, that could be. Somebody on the oh, live stream, fact check us. <laughs> well, well, welcome back, though. How's it going? I'm doing great. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. So I, I think one of the reasons why perhaps maybe I thought that it was your fourth time is because uh, we we think similarly. All, all three of us generally think similarly about Bitcoin. And Brandon, you just uh, wrote a, a, a paper on Bitcoin as it relates to the world of, around it called, uh, what, what did you call it? Bitcoin and generational shift, something like that? And the rhythms of history. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this the the idea is I, I actually knew that you had were into this idea of um, the the turnings, right? Because you referenced it on a podcast that I listened to, and and I think that's actually how I ended up reading the book. Uh, and maybe you can kind of give us the the elevator pitch of your article, but then I kind of want to start with what this book is all about and why it's important. Yeah, it's a 10,000 word essay. So I would say the elevator pitch would be tough, but I'll try and do my best. Um, essentially, the, the point of it was to place us in history. So if we zoom way out, where are we? You know, looking back hundreds of years, you know, some everyone always feels like everyone's talking like something's going on right now. We feel a change. People are fighting over culture and people are trying to describe why and how and um, the book, The Fourth Turning, has a thesis that essentially looks at generational shifts. And in this thesis, roughly every 90 years, the cycle starts over. And right now we're at the very end of that cycle, which is considered the fourth turning, which is a crisis period. And that's essentially where the world wakes up and they say, you know what? Things are not working. It's time to burn it all down and start over. And the historical analog to where we are now would be late 30s, 1930s, which was the previous fourth turning. Started with the stock market collapse, then we had the Great Depression, um, New Deal, lots of spending, you know, finally decided that we're going to adopt Keynesianism, which is deficit spending during a crisis period. Then we went right into World War II. Um, obviously, the whole world got re-architected after World War II. That's the IMF, that's the World Bank, that's NATO, Bretton Woods, everything like that. And then we went into a, a high period, which would be the first turning, you know, that sort of Pax Americana that's inventing suburbs, the soldiers come home and it's this relative peacetime and prosperity. And that's pretty much everyone's sick of fighting. It's time to cooperate. And so we're about 10 years away from that peacetime if we follow the same thesis. So we're right in the middle of the crisis period. And my best assessment is that 2008 kicked off the fourth turning and each turning lasts about 22 years. So sometime between now and 2030, you'll feel the mood shift. We'll go into a collaborative, peaceful cooperation period and hopefully rebuild a new foundation for a more prosperous future. So one thing I'm always interested in is like the intersection and you can even connect this to like technical analysis and trading. Like sometimes the chart for something lines up extremely well with like the world around it and like the news cycle and news events, right? Uh, and that kind of seems to be what, what I see uh, being described here with Bitcoin. 
uh, and in the and the world around Bitcoin as well, right? Like there, and we we constantly hear people talking about like, oh, COVID is actually a financial crisis, except this financial crisis is different, right? And like the whole the whole asterisk asterisk of oh, this one's different is kind of what I gather to be like a turning a turning of the wheel, right? A turning of of it is it is it a seculum that's one quarter of uh one 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 part of this series or is the seculum the whole thing yeah the seculum is the whole 90 year cycle okay. which is what's, a, what's the smaller unit uh a turning so there's turning, four right. turnings okay. you right. can think spring summer fall winter mm -hmm. right um maybe if you if you can can you kind of like talk about the last four turnings and how they have characterized the generations that have occurred under them yeah, definitely. I think that's important to do. So the previous fourth turning we just mentioned, that's 1929 to 1945. So that's the crisis. That's what we're in right now, followed by an American high, which is the first turning that spring. That's cooperation. Um, that's a, that's a, usually a really nice time. Um, that's also when culture gets sort of boring and stale, right? Equality is high. Individualism is low in the first turning. And then what happens is the baby boomers are born during that relative peacetime. They grow up, the boomers, everything is given to them. And then they come of age and they look at culture and they realize, what's up with this leave it to beaver, white picket fence? There's no culture. There's no music. There's no edge. Everyone's spiritually bankrupt. So then the boomers revolt and they push back and they create a revolution. And that's, that's a period where we redo the interior world. Think culture, music, spirituality, civil rights, all that comes up. And if you look throughout history, that would be the Puritans. That would be any religious movements going back roughly 500 years. And after that period of uh, revolution, we go into a period, the third turning, which is considered the unraveling. The analog would be the 1920s. Um, so roughly the early 80s all the way through 2008. That's when culture is declining and, you know, the economics are still okay and people realize that it's getting worse, but nobody really cares. There's not enough willpower to change it. And that's when you see things like crime rising, um, the left and the right start to bicker, that's deregulation. That's just essentially the moral decay of society. And then the fourth turning, which started in 2008 in our current situation here, a nice parallel to 1929, and that's a period where we recognize that our institutions are shit, but we actually need them. And so it's sort of a period where we have to come together as a group. Usually this is sparked by total war. So previous examples would be the Civil War, the American Revolution, uh, World War II, etc. And so it doesn't necessarily mean we need a war, but what we do need is a catalyst that's sufficient to mobilize all the people together to make giant societal shifts. And we can talk about this later if we get into it. But the question mark is, is COVID a big enough crisis to mobilize the world to change? And my instinct says no, but I think we should probably come to that one later. Okay. All right. Uh, wh where do you think that, that we should start then? Because uh, actually, that's kind of where, where my, my mind went. Because, you know, there seems to be so many crises happening right now, maybe not just related to COVID. Like we also have... Um, I also recently just watched the Social Dilemma movie, uh, which kind of illustrates a crisis of, is there, is there a clicking wheel going on? Yeah, I hear that. I don't know if someone's fidgeting. That's me. That, okay. Yeah, that is coming right. through on the mic, just FYI. Uh, okay. Um, 
uh, and so like the, there's the the, the social d dilemma uh, crisis, which is how, you know, the where we uh, society spends such a significant amount of its time, which is on Facebook, on Twitter, is polarizing and we can't talk to each other as a society. That's a crisis in of itself. And then COVID is also amplifying that while also offering its own crisis. It seems to be there's just like this collection of crises going on here that we're all kind of experiencing it all at once. On top of that, there's like this pension crisis, insolvency crisis. It seems to be like a bajillion different crises. Totally. Yeah, that's actually exactly how fourth turnings go. And one thing to think about is it's, it's more of a mood. It's a feeling. It's how society responds to a catalyst. That's kind of how you can look at these moods. So if you look back to, um, was it 1917, the, the Germans sunk the, uh, our boat, the Luther Luther yeah. yeah, that guy, that guy got sank there. And what do we That's do? Example. And what do we do about it? Nothing. Right. All, all we did was say, oh man, shoot. And we didn't go to war and everybody supported a period of, of not going to war there. That's a third turning. Nobody wants to make change. Then in 1941, December 7th, Pearl Harbor happened. And the very next day we went total war and the whole country supports it. Right. And so that's the mood responding to a similar catalyst. How about 9-11? That's that should be in the third turning, right? We went to war. Just trying to throw a curveball here. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good question. So 9-11, what do we do? Do we go to total war or do we just have this stupid proxy war over the Middle East for a decade? That's right. common. It was, it was soft. Yeah, we didn't really commit. Mm -hmm. And if that happened today, uh, we would bomb that country to the ground immediately and everyone would cheer. Right. You that's so? the difference. You think so? If we go to the fourth turnings, wars are decisive. There are clear winners and losers. And so back to what you were saying, though, there's all these crises right now. Mm -hmm. And that that's true. And they're all stacking up. They're all adding together. But none of them so far, in my opinion, are big enough to actually mobilize the, the, the whole country together to make change. COVID, wow. I thought, could be it. But all COVID did was fracture the population even more. Mm -hmm. Left versus right is stronger than ever. Ur uh, urban versus rural, that mm -hmm. divide is stronger than ever. And so I think like the four potentials I see for the, cr the crisis are COVID maybe, but I don't think so. Uh, civil war, <laughs> sadly, I think that's the most likely. Total war. So let's think in the next five years, trade tensions with China increase or we fight over the new global financial system that goes to war. That's possible. Um, the fourth option would be a black swan, something unpredictable, financial collapse, terrorism, cyber attacks or something. But sadly, I think civil war is the most likely. And America is really, really close right now. And most people don't want to believe that. But I, I think it actually is true. Um, and when you think about the civil war, uh, the previous civil war it was very clear to sides north south you know there's ideological differences that was that but that doesn't need to be what a civil war looks like it could be this fractured um, fog of war confusing thing lots of sides you don't really know lots of disruptions and you know that that's what i think we're actually heading towards something like overturning roe versus wade that might do it if um let's say let's say the Democrats win the election and the far right believe that it's a conspiracy uh, to take away their guns or something like that. There's a lot of far right militias who are ready to go to civil war. They're ready right now. And it doesn't take many of them to do outsized damage. And they also all live where the food grows and where the natural resources are. The city dwellers are vulnerable and we don't have any guns. And so there's there's very clear sparks here that could come. 
And if you go back to the Revolutionary War, so um, I don't know how they got this data, but apparently only about a third of the people in the 13 original colonies supported an American Revolution. The rest were, were really, really strongly opposed. And yet that one third was all it took to push them over the edge. And right now it's it's between 25 and 30 percent of Americans who support their state seceding from the federal government. And so I think we're actually closer than people want to believe. And all it takes is one more catalyst to push us over the edge. And that's quite scary. Gradually, then suddenly. And uh, yeah, I mean, personally, we've been talking about um, jurisdictions being broken down. And what if what if like, you know, the United States break down before Bitcoin even has a chance to start attacking the dollar? Like, what what does that do? Right. Um, but before we talk about like, I want to get into this topic more, but I do kind of want to talk about like a lot of what you discuss with the fourth turning is like these rhythms of uh, of time and like these kind of cycles. And a lot of that is driven by like four different generations right um within that 90 year period can you talk about like the different um archetypes of generations who is playing who right now in this turning and kind of like what does that mean yeah definitely let me just pull this up actually that'll be more helpful um okay so the four generations in play right now we've got the boomer gen x millennial and gen z and so the boomers they're the ideological um they're very they're very uh, supportive of individualism. And if I guess it's a setback, how it relates to Bitcoin is everybody wants Bitcoin. Every single generation wants it. It doesn't matter which one you're in because of the economic reality of this is the best asset to own. You need it. And so the thing to think about is each generation needs a different pitch. And so they'll appreciate a different side of Bitcoin. Okay, so let's go from the from the oldest down. You've got the boomers. Uh, they're the profit archetype, ideologues, individualism, and they come of age during the second turnings and they cause a cultural revolution. Um, after that, you've got Gen Z. They're even more ideological and independent. They were sort of born in a neglected period where the boomers grew up after the, the psychedelic 60s and they, they became the yuppies and then they just didn't parent that generation. So they're rugged, they're individualism, uh, strong for individualism. And for them, you want to pitch them on Bitcoin to get rich. The boomers, you want to pitch independence. You can do it on your own. You know, you don't need to rely on the state. And then you have the millennials. Um, they come of age during the crisis. That's right now. And the millennials are the hero generation. And they're the team players. And during the crisis periods, they actually flirt with uh, a very scary thing called socialism. Right. They want equality. They want teamwork and they're willing to make massive sacrifices for it. And the same thing happened in the 30s. And so if you want to pitch Bitcoin to a millennial, you don't want to talk about defunding the state or separating money from the state. You want to talk about the fact that it's decentralized and consensus rules the day instead of 12 old rich white guys at the Fed. And then finally, you have the Gen Z generation. They're the artists. They're the children of the crisis. They're the young people right now. They grew up and all they know is financial collapse. They, they see COVID, they see potentially a war coming soon. And so they're the type of generation who's shy and scared and timid, and they don't want to rock the boat. They just want to stay safe. So for them, Bitcoin will be an insurance policy for the old ones. And for the young people right now, the young artists, they'll probably just only know Bitcoin as an obvious thing. They won't really think anything of it. It won't be a thing to get rich on. It'll just be uh, the money thing, you know? So that, that's the how you. 
<clears throat> it's funny how you kind of uh, put it into that, into the, like, you, you, uh, you characterize it in that way and you kind of like design the pitch for each generation. I was actually, I organized a Bitcoin meetup on the beach yesterday and there was Bitcoiners from every generation. There was a boomer, there was a couple of Zoomers, there was a bunch of millennials. And um, it's, I think it was like very true. Like the Zoomers were very much like, yeah, I'm just like stacking sats because everything else is stupid. Like, <laughs> like I'm just going to hold on to this. Maybe I'll live in a freaking box truck and convert that and just stack as much sats as I can. Like that's like kind of like their mentality. So very much like conservative, not rock the boat. I'm just trying to like do my thing. Um, so, and yeah, maybe even with, uh, with Bill, who's more of like the, the boomer slash, uh, gen, uh, what gen Xer, you know, he's more like just bought a house. I need Bitcoin to moon. Um, but I like that I can just do it on my own, but it's okay to use Coinbase. Like who cares? Like, you know, it's just, it, it definitely fits the mold based on like my experience. That's awesome. <laughs> And I think that's kind of why we wanted to get you on the podcast, because the the, the biggest takeaway that I got out of this article was that um, pe people around Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself, and both people from, from inside the world of crypto and outside the world, world of crypto are coming to understand what Bitcoin is better, right? And and perhaps that's uh, fitting of the times. There's no, there's no better time for... Uh, something like Bitcoin to be a thing when uh, when we are printing a bunch of money, right? Like all of a sudden the role of Bitcoin becomes very, very clear. But not only are people from like, quote unquote, the inside, which I, is where I consider you, Brandon, but also people from the outside are also learning to articulate what Bitcoin is without needing the help of Bitcoiners, right? Like because Paul Tudor Jones articulated the Bitcoin thesis before he knew about a bunch of Bitcoiners that beat the Bitcoin drum that he didn't even know they existed, right? And so Bitcoin as a piece of technology is, is maturing to the point where it, it is being understood. It's being understood by, by everyone in their own particular way. And there's nothing more bullish than an asset being understood that was previously not understood, right? Like you're, you're only ever going to purchase something that you understand. And, and people coming to understand these things is so bullish. It's, it's the most bullish thing I can think of right now. 100% agree. And I, I would frame it like this. Um, the 2010 to 2019, 2020 time period, everyone was asleep. Absolutely nothing important happened. We had a recovery and everybody went to sleep. And then all of a sudden we had COVID and the entire world is shaken out of their slumber and they have to start to reassess what's going on. They look at their finances. They look at their friends. Who are their actual friends? The, your actual friends are the people that you spent time with during the last six years or six months or talked to yeah. all of a sudden. Before. Yeah. All of a sudden the rest of the stuff didn't matter because it really didn't matter. And so that's happening at the individual level, the family level. It's also happening at the investor level, right? You have the example of Michael Saylor who said in about 12 hours, he went from uh, what's Bitcoin or I don't really know anything about it to I'm all in. And then the guy bought $425 million worth of Bitcoin for his company. And he personally owns just under 18,000 Bitcoins, right? And that speaks to the fact that, uh, number one, the conditions are ripe, right? The macro conditions say it's we need Bitcoin. We're going through a currency devaluation period. There's nothing investable. So um, just 
by, rel by the relative alternatives, Bitcoin looks really nice. Um, but at the same time, we're going through a period of chaos. And so you do want a little bit of insurance during this time. And I think you, you absolutely nailed that. Um, the Bitcoin pitch is sneaking out of Bitcoin Twitter. And all of a sudden we're finding these new heroes that everyone just champions on Twitter, um, pitching it in their own way. And I think that's super exciting. Um, it also shows the fact that the content creators in the Bitcoin space are making the on-ramp easier, mm -hmm. right? It's definitely hard to understand Bitcoin the first time, uh, especially if you don't have these backgrounds. And most people into Bitcoin right now were predisposed in some way, but it's becoming a little bit easier to get to that. And now even talking to normie friends, like my close friends, I badgered them enough, they all own Bitcoin, but most normal people have all kinds of weird reservations. Mm -hmm. And what that means is there's still a tremendous amount of upside because a tiny amount of people understand it. And as soon as you understand Bitcoin, you buy it, yep. right? So that information asymmetry means the upside is gigantic mm -hmm. because everyone's going to own it. There's a lot of capital on the side and they just don't understand why they need it yet. Absolutely. So what is Bitcoin as a tool that all four turnings or archetypes can rely on, right? And and you you touched on this a little bit ago, where you where you said there's a, that we're in a world of chaos right now. And you, in your in your article, you have a little graphic that talks about the peaks and valleys of chaos and order as it proceeds through the seculum. So what what does Bitcoin offer the world that is the same for all four archetypes, right? All four turnings and how it relates to order and chaos. Yeah, definitely. So David's speaking to a, a chart I made in, in the article, also in the tweet thread uh, pinned to my Twitter. And it's looking at two variables, the supply and the demand of order over time. And what's interesting is these two variables, they sort of chase each other over time. And I'll just give you a quick overview and then we'll bring it back to, to Bitcoin and how the generations will see Bitcoin. So in the first turning, that's the high, that's peacetime. Um, that's the 1950s. Um, both the supply and the demand of order are really high. Okay. Then you go into the second turning and that's when the demand for order plummets. That's because the baby boomers say, you know what? I don't like the institutions. Everything's boring. We're going to burn this thing down. And so now you have that very high delta between supply and demand of order. And then in the third turning. Okay, so let's after, pause there. So let's, let's go through that. So uh, yeah. In the, the the 50s was when there was a very high supply of order, but demand for order was falling. Right, and the 50s is this time period where like the 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 man goes off to work, the wife is at home, like the kids are have their white picket fence. Kids don't really have a lot of freedom because there's just white picket fence after white picket fence. There's no like there's no creativity there, right? And so there's all this order in the world. We've really structured this world. We have this common shared enemy in the Soviets and the communists. And, and there's this order everywhere, except the kids, if you're like, well, there's too much goddamn order. Is, all, is, all, is that description correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you can also think of it from an institutional level. We just essentially invented suburbs. We just reallocated wealth from old people to young people. We created pensions, social security, unemployment insurance, NATO, UN, all kinds of external structures just to keep everything together because we're so sick of the fighting and the chaos from World War II. We want the complete opposite of that. And that's what you get in the first turning. And then, like you said, the boomers don't like it, the white picket fence, et cetera. And so they burn it all down. And then in the third turning, both the supply hippie and vans. the demand. 
hippie vans come out, which are hippie vans and just like, you know, shared buses that, that drive around the nation is like the opposite of a white picket fence, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And young people just do the opposite of what their parents do. It's a very human thing. It's just rebelling from right. the nest. Mm -hmm. And pause here. That's one interesting thing about the thesis is it's emergent from the ground up in human society. It shouldn't work, but it does. And the, the history and generations, those two variables are symbiotic. And so we're all born as millennials at the same time. And so history essentially imprints us with the times. And so we're imprinted by the, the time that we grew up. And then when we get older, we, since we're all kind of similar, then we push back on history and we change history. And then history imprints the next generation right. who grow up and it just mm -hmm. goes in a cycle. Mm -hmm. so, and so there's a, there's a famous uh, thing that I, I think it's from the book, but um, it's uh, like hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. And, you know, the cycle repeats. I feel like that very much, uh, you know, illustrates kind of like what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, and so, so who are we, who are the millennials? Are we the weak men? Are we the, the victims that are about to get the hard times? Uh, no, we're going through the hard times right now. And so hard times in this sense would create good men. And we are the ones who need to go create the good thing, um, the good times. But I want to be clear, all these generations, they're not good or bad. Heroes are not the good ones. Heroes right. are the ones who over-index for order. Right. So if, we, if the millennials take control and we have too much power for too long, we turn into Nazi Germany. That's mm -hmm. an example of an over-dominant, over-orderly, uh, militant, nationalist, rigid, don't rock the boat, we're all the same type mentality. And so we actually have to be careful right now as millennials because the the, the natural the nation's climate is collectivism. Mm -hmm. the, the, the extreme left is the culture of the day. And mm -hmm. so that's what we're rebelling against with Bitcoin in a sense, um, because Bitcoin sort of is this capitalist organization that can push back on, on that. Um, mm -hmm. But let, let's finish supply and demand for yeah. it. Yes. So the third turning, rock bottom supply and demand for order. Nobody gives a shit. This is the, the roaring 20s. Uh, this is the 80s and the 90s in hip hop and uh, crime and, you know, deregulation and the getting's good in Wall Street and nobody, nobody cares. Um, and then we go into the fourth turning, which is where the, the supply of order is still low. We're coming right out of that. But all of a sudden, everyone realizes that the excesses of the 90s and the early 2000s, that's not good enough. We're seeing moral decay. And so all of a sudden, society flips and we all now demand order. And we suddenly realize that our institutions suck mm -hmm. and we need to rebuild good ones because, shoot, they're actually important. We forgot right. that. Right. So that there wasn't any order previously. And, you know, for a while that was a party. Uh, but, you know, parties only last so long. Like all of a sudden you wake up hungover and you're like, oh, wow, I wish I wish there was more order in my life. Uh, and exactly. it, I, f I feel like the one of the thesis of your pieces is that we, we need places to discover order from. And right now what we are discovering is that it, our, we have no we are not actually receiving the order that we want from our institutions right like we hear this in every sort of you know crypto podcast or not crypto podcast or crypto media or not crypto media there's an absolute lack of trust in institutions like andrew yang ran on this on this whole entire premise right and donald trump did too like we have institutions 
and they don't work for us, right? They're they're bad and they're bad ones. And and so I, I one of the solutions that I think Bitcoin offers to the world is that Bitcoin offers a new kind of institution, specifically a trustless one, right? Where you don't have to trust Bitcoin, and that's the order that it provides. Yeah, exactly right. I, th I think you nailed on something there. And this this idea actually came out at the very end of my studies here. It was about six months with this material. And funny enough, my original thesis, well, I was going to write it called Bitcoin is the fifth turning. And my thesis was that Bitcoin is going to break the cycle. Um, mm. Pretty boltard Bitcoiner right. type of talk. <laughs> um, because after I went through the material more, I realized that I was way wrong. Uh, Bitcoin right. just fits into the thesis. It's way, this, this, this cycle has been going on for hundreds of years or thousands of years. It's very, right. very deep. Mm -hmm. And so interestingly, though, Bitcoin does represent this institution, right? We do need order and Bitcoin does provide order. It actually it actually produces more order in a sense because the politicians build or we build the institutions and they start out good. We have good intentions, mm -hmm. but then they decay over 50 years or so. But right. interestingly, Bitcoin would not decay theoretically like our, our human driven political social institutions. And so I could see each generation diving into this propping up this new fabric of trustlessness that mm -hmm. binds everyone together it fixes the rules that's really important the rules are fixed we can build on top of this thing um like sabo says it increases social scalability and so do institutions mm -hmm. however human driven institutions have a ceiling right there's that glass ceiling and we're, we're, right. we're budding up into it and i i think bitcoin has a chance to get us past that Mm -hmm. And from a conflict standpoint, interestingly, we normally go into war, but I, I think there's a chance here for Bitcoin to serve as a pressure release valve. So instead of states failing or instead of individuals having nothing to live for, so they, they're, they're violent, they can sort of opt out of the system and gradually jump into Raul Paul's Bitcoin life raft and maybe that will decrease conflicts maybe that will prevent total war maybe this will be the first fifth turning that doesn't result in war in the last 500 years my sister go for it christian no, oh you tell the story that i'm going to jump in so my, my sister works in government right and so her and i have this just you know friction between us because you know I, we, we've been, at least in the, in America, we've been voting every, every single election. And it, it's always like, this election is so pivotal, right? Every four years, we have the most pivotal election, right? We have these problems and then we have this election and I'm, I'm, I tend to vote Democrat. And so I vote Demo De Democrat and sometimes the, the Democrat doesn't get in. And then we have these new problems that arise, especially with Donald Trump, a bunch of new problems came out in the last four years. And we forget about the old problems that made the last election so pivotal. And th that election erased the problems that came before it that made that election so pivotal. We, instead of solving the problems, we just discover more problems. And I th and and people like my sister, who I feel like work inside the government, who can't see the forest for the trees, I don't. They somehow think that we are going to democracy our way into like fixing all the problems that we haven't been fixing every four years, right? We don't solve like the United States nation state democracy doesn't really solve problems. We just figure out how to not explode. Right. And it's coming to a point where like I, it doesn't seem like we're going to figure out how to not explode. And so people I, people mistakenly think that we are going to like linearly democracy our way into a better nation. And I just don't see that's just just well, not happening. 
do you remember you voted recently, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember well, what I, that experience I, was like and reading about the different props and like how much thought went into writing those little prop descriptions on the on the ballot? Did you like think about any of that? Oh no, I actually gave my my ballot to my dad and I said you can fill this out. Oh man. All right. Well, regardless, like it wasn't that professional. It wasn't like that thought you know well thought out you know none of that stuff Mm -hmm. was like and ultimately you know what the reason why i like the concept that brandon is talking about in the fourth turning is this idea of like build something that something you know stood on the shoulders of giants but ultimately has a ceiling it gets to the point where we've exhausted that ceiling and reached it and then you gotta burn it down you gotta go down the little peak um a little bit and then come back up for a higher a higher peak um, by building a better institution and what you know in some institutions like the number zero we we all love the robert breedlove uh article where he compared bitcoin to zero some new inventions some new institutions really do change the game it doesn't happen every single time but happens sometimes and uh i think that's what you've been kind of alluding to with bitcoin could break the turning bitcoin could just change the rhythm as it is right because it's this new institution that can be relied on by enemies for enemies. It can drive this endless cold war where you never actually have to shoot uh, bullets. Who knows, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, I think David made a good point to tie into that, Christian, which is that consensus amongst the institutions and the people inside and the people who want to believe in democracy, which millennials very much want to believe in strong institutions. We're all begging for big daddy government, big mommy government to fix everything. Um, however, in fourth turnings, that's just not the case. And I, I came to this realization in my personal life, which was I wanted to change the system. I felt like something was wrong. And then I found Bitcoin, which sort of gave me another way to look at this problem. And I came to the conclusion that the system cannot be changed from the inside. It's not possible. And the state itself doesn't want to fix itself. They, they have their own their own ideas of the future and what they want, their own incentives. And so... The idea that the state's going to save us, just we just need to get rid of that idea. It was never, it was never actually true, right? We might have some happy little accidents, little byproducts. The plebs get happy with little things they drop to us, um, but they're not on our team. Mm-hmm. And some people would say that that's kind of like a defeatist, nihilistic, mm-hmm. whatever. But I actually don't think of it like that. I see that as a very empowering thing because what that means to me is they're not going to fix it, so we have to. And that's why you see um, this whole community, Bitcoin, Ethereum, it's extended group. We notice something's wrong and we're trying to fix it. Uh, And to me, that's very motivating. And I don't think it's going to break the wheel or anything, but I think what it could do is dampen volatility, right? We do need a blow off top here in the next 10 years. It's mandatory for society. Um, However, what Bitcoin does, it's a black hole for volatility. It will accept any chaos you give it. And it, it only makes Bitcoin stronger. And so, yeah, I think Bitcoin will just smooth out these waves, um, but we're still going to have the waves. And mm-hmm. it's a good thing that we have the waves, right? Because right now, young people are screwed. There's absolutely nothing to invest in. The debt's massive, which means we're paying for the debt. Old people don't care about that. And so we do need to tilt the game board back towards young people to give young people optimism. We need to have a brush fire so the new shoots can grow. Yeah. Absolutely. And like, 
talking about Bitcoin is like a black hole for volatility. It's funny that one of the biggest criticisms of Bitcoin for the last 12 years has been Bitcoin is too volatile. But all of a sudden, it just it seems to be like flipping a switch where people understand that Bitcoin itself, the price in USD may be volatile, but Bitcoin itself is the most stable thing. It's the most reliable thing. TikTok next block every 10 minutes. Right. The, the volatility of BTC, the asset, is absorbing all the volatility away from the rest of the Bitcoin ecosystem, right? Like that's all, all of Bitcoin's volatility is only expressed in the asset and which lends stability to the whole rest of the system, which is where we get our order from, which according to the theory of the, the turnings is what we need most at this present moment. Exactly right. Well said. Yeah. And the funny thing about the volatility whiners is you know, it's not a very sophisticated critique because if you look at the chart, yeah, it's volatile. It's volatile to the upside. Mm -hmm. And if you dollar cost average into Bitcoin, there's not a single point in time that if you just consistently dollar cost averages that you'd be down. You can't pick a time. So right. what does that say? Uh, I mean, I work at Swan, so I'm a little biased, but right. dollar cost average, right. that's the way to buy into this investment. Or, mm -hmm. or if you have a lot of money and you just realized how short you are, you just woke up and realized Bitcoin's value prop and you feel like you're, you're a little short. Um, yeah, FOMO buy right now and then dollar cost average. Mm -hmm. But volatility is our friend. And yeah. Bitcoin's a fourth turning money. Fiat's a first turning money. Mm -hmm. And you can use the Bain quote there. Volatility. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Like it, if we're turning into a world of volatility, let's go into the asset that understands how to be volatile. So and, and so this kind of brings us back to what I, I was talking about at the very beginning, kind of when, what, where I want to turn to next and to finish off this conversation. It's, 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 there's, there's always this elegance, elegant coherency between like the uh, technical analysis of a Bitcoin chart and we can link it to like the turning that we are currently in. And if you go to the Bitcoin chart and sort it by like monthly or even yearly, it's the most bullish fucking chart of all time, right? Especially right now as we are breaching like 13,000 ready to go on to 14,000. And it seems to be that like the and what a chart is, at least as it reflects the value, the perceived value of an asset is um, the it's it's a way for graphing on how the world uh, understands and needs something, right? And so, if Bitcoin, if we have a a year, a one year candles, which there are twelve of them for Bitcoin, and the, those two, uh, twelve year candles span half of a turning, right? A little bit less than half of a turning. What that chart is telling you is that whatever this thing is, is coming into the peak right at the right moment, especially when we do the little triangle wedge from 2017, which points right into the COVID crisis. I and love, the election, I love which David. Is right now. That's insane. I love David T.A. Honestly, <laughs> like Satoshi, Satoshi is literally like saw from or uh, jigsaw from the movie saw for the financial system. Like he set up the financial system in every single way based on all of its vices and just in one one flick of a switch just crushed it all at once and that's like that's what bitcoin represents it's really crazy and on top of that the four-year cycle hitting on the elections just yeah. oh man maximum yeah. volatility yeah it's the perfect storm right but david okay. me and you have gone back and forth many times mm -hmm. about you know is the four-year cycle in crypto 
about the having. Does the having drive this thing? And you've definitely expressed many doubts. I think mm-hmm. pretty much every Bitcoin maximalist think you know subscribes to that theory that the having does drive this stuff. You know, how do you feel about that right now? And would you agree, disagree? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last time we had this debate, I definitely have, I could definitely see a world where I move closer to what you were saying, where like, yes, the happening could underpin more than I originally appreciated. Uh, But to be honest, I haven't thought about that until like just now. So I would need to collect my thoughts on that. Um, I do believe that how it was DeFi that pushed Bitcoin above $10,000 though. So I I do believe that. The the summer is always for Ethereum, (laughs) I guess. I guess. This, you, you, do you notice that ETH is always, it always hits its top somewhere in like July, August. So you kind of. Uh, so not, counterpoint to DeFi summer mm-hmm. is that how much new money came in? That That's the real question, right? Because new money is what drives up the whole market. Mm-hmm. And I saw this on Twitter. I don't remember who, who pitched this thesis, but it was essentially that the incremental gains in Bitcoin's market cap. Um, when Bitcoin goes up, people take profits and they gamble in uh, smaller market cap coins, right? That, that's mm-hmm. a known trade strategy and it legitimately works. So you could say that DeFi summer was because Bitcoin was bullish, new profits were gained, and then people gambled with some profits, which turned into a little uh, hot potato game. Right. Um, but you, you also can't deny the actual things that were happening with DeFi summer because there were some very real Ethereum slash DeFi native mechanisms that were aside from the price of Bitcoin. Well, I mean, you need the rails to have the activity. And ultimately, like I'll push on this and what DeFi does provide right now is KY free trading and exposure to leverage and tokens that people want. So we already know that that is something that's always in high demand. It's oh, from the history of when Bitcoin started, non-KYC exposure to trading has always been something that has been a moneymaker. So mm-hmm. this is true. Yeah, and I, I think there might be something coming out of that. I don't know what the fate of DeFi is or Ethereum, but if we think about this current cycle, um, I think I think Ether will do fine. Um, but I, I don't think it's actually matched up for the times. I think mm-hmm. Ether's time, if it will have a time, will be a, a bit further into the future. It's got yeah. a lot of kinks to work out. Um, it could provide value. I don't know. But the things right now are, are kind of wacky and like KYC free stuff. That's probably a temporary honeymoon period before the big boys come in and uh, attack mm-hmm. uh, or, or chase down these protocols. Um, but I don't know. We've had hang this on, hang on though, before. because because if we are in a in a turning where we are needing order that we don't have, and we don't have trust in institutions to provide us with that order, and Bitcoin does provide us with new order that we do like, I contend that a lot of the DeFi applications are providing order in a similar way to what Bitcoin is offering, right? Because it's offering trustless financial services, right? It's providing uh, like financial upside in a, in a trustless manner, in a decentralized manner. And I would, and I, that, I would push back that the cocktail is just all kinds of fucked up and there's emphasis on the wrong things that people don't care about and not emphasis on the right things. So it's just not scalable. It's not going to get there. I, I would, I would, frame it like, I would frame it like this, which is that um, the Ethereum crowd would say Bitcoiners only care about number go up and making money. 
and the Ethereum's Ethereum crowd has a bit more, um, you know, a, a better vision of the future, right? A more wholesome thing, decentralize everything, make everyone happy. We're unicorn close. And I'm obviously caricaturizing the thing to make the point. Um, and now what we're what happened is that the Bitcoiners are like these um, hearkening back to the golden era, you know, humble sat stackers. Mm -hmm. And the Ethereum people are going double leverage long, wrapped in an upside down, twirly twirl, uh, crazy protocols. And they're just gambling protocols. It okay, the, the first caricature I was with, the second caricature I was not with. Oh, I mean, I, I think that that's not the destiny of DeFi. I'm saying that's what's that's what happened in the summer. It was yes, insiders was making yeah, yeah. money, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't take away from whether or not there's something buried in there that becomes mm -hmm. a gem. You know, yeah. I, I have no clue about that. I do think that like, say, say a, a world three, five, 10 years from now where everyone just like, oh yeah, Bitcoin. Like it's the thing that we use in, in that world that world is also like that acceptance of Bitcoin as the thing that we use also bodes well for DeFi as the thing that we use. Because if you're ready to accept Bitcoin into your hearts, DeFi is not far behind. Because again, De DeFi, no matter how it manifests in its present time, whether it's just some shitcoin gambling thing that's maybe got some backdoors that we don't want, the ethos is the same. And the goal is also similar, highly similar to providing trustless decentralized financial uh, in services and also therefore order by institutions that you don't have to trust. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll submit that that is a potential future vision. Bitcoin succeeds mm -hmm. and the scaling mechanisms will come or the services like financial services will come from Bitcoin banks, mm -hmm. some semi-custodial, some fully centralized. And then there probably will be some sort of wacky derivative market because uh, people want that. The demand is real. And so I, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's impossible. Yeah. So, wait, so I'll, yeah, just jumping in. Like, yeah, I've always like pushed back that Bitcoin has enabled shitcoinery, right? Like Bitcoin enables a market that is unsavory. Like that's the whole point. It's like it enables permissionlessness. It enables what you like and what you don't like. It's money for enemies, right? So, um, you know, what David is saying, I think is true. And we just don't know in what form, like quote unquote, uh, decentralized or trustless, you know, f finance, leverage, trading, gambling, any of that stuff. Like I'm sure all of that is going to, uh, you know, come come to be in the future, especially as this uh, continues to evolve. So um, I definitely kind of agree with what David is saying, and um, ultimately, you know, I, I would say that everyone in the crypto space is a Bitcoiner. We just kind of disagree on what the future looks like, right? So, I mean, I would say that I've seen plenty of people on the Ethereum side of things, like clearly they have bags of Bitcoin and they're quite happy with the obvious bullishness. So, I mean, that's been my position for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a no brainer point that um, I think most people who listen to this already know that. Mm -hmm. um, but but it actually does make Bitcoin in, in this weird way unique. And speaking to David's recent piece, which we exchanged a few DMs over this. He already knows my comments. Uh, extremely well-written, uh, well-argumented, good writing, enjoyable read. Uh, but my main disagreement is that Bitcoin as an asset versus Bitcoin as a culture on Bitcoin Twitter that clashes mm -hmm. with other cultures. Those are two different things. And the asset of Bitcoin has 
uh, characteristics that are unique and rational people demand the characteristics that Bitcoin has. And so whether you're an Ethereum person who absolutely hates the Bitcoin community, it's still in your best interest to own Bitcoin. You'll just be quiet about it. Mm -hmm. Just like Iran is under U.S. sanctions and they can't, they have no dollars. Right. Uh, they don't have any way to buy imports. Now they can use Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Right. And the U.S. is going to hate this. Right. I, I fear that it's a little too early for Iran and Venezuela to yep. be on the Bitcoin train because yep. pretty soon the government's going to say terrorist money. Right. And then we're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. Isn't it great that Paul Tudor Jones bought in right before that, though? <laughs> it's like there's a race order of things. <laughs> this is a cat and mouse game. And like, mm -hmm. let's just try to kick our can down the down the hill faster. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay, so 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 on that note, so so aside from, and, and for what it's worth, there are some people uh, in the Ethereum camp that I talk to that are like, you know, Bitcoin just needs to die. It's this grungy old man. It's like it's in the way. It's preventing innovation. And like I provide that attitude or take just as much as much weight as like the the most ridiculous Bitcoin maxis that think that like that treat Bitcoin a little bit too religiously than actually a practically an, an asset, right? So let's finish off this conversation with talking about Bitcoin, the asset, which is where you finished uh, your article, Brandon, talking about the inevitability of Bitcoin with its relationship to MMT. So kind of uh, if you could walk us through the maybe the conclusion of your article where uh, it, it doesn't really matter how we proceed as a nation or how our central bank proceeds as a policy because bitcoin's coming either way if you could kind of give us that pitch but also how it relates to the fourth turning that'd be great yeah yeah good point so right now if you look at macro climate um the imf the world bank the boe the pboc the fed essentially all the big banks in the entire world are all saying central bank digital currencies are coming so let's just let's just take that at face value there. That's that's coming. And the, the probably the main reason is because we've hit the zero bound of, of interest rates and quantitative easing is not really that effective. So what that means is central banks who are supposed to steer the economy don't have any way to do that anymore. So central bank digital currencies mean every individual has an account with the Fed instead of using commercial banks as intermediaries. So now what this does, it gives the, the central banks this incredible tool. They can say, you know what, David, you have too much cash on the side. We're going to give you a 10% negative interest rate. Put that money to work. Christian, you just graduated college. We're going to give you a student account that gives you 5% interest so you can accumulate some capital. They can also tax you at the point of sale or the point of income. And they can look at the whole economy and turn off your money if you're, if you're uh, against the government. right? So it's this epic system of, of total control. It's, it's peak hubris for the banking class where they think they can just to get enough data, if you know everyone's information, you can manage the economy. And so it's behavioral economics in a dystopian future. Now, on the positive side, there are good things that will happen. UBI will be shot right into your pocket from this. And temporarily, it will uh, create more equality in the world. And I think that comes at a cost, a massive cost of freedom. And I don't really know how bad it's going to get. Um, but then what's going to happen is now all governments have the central bank digital currency. We essentially buy some time and we sort of, you know, calm down social unrest. And then the next step is calling for a Bretton Woods 2.0. Okay. This was already described by some of the big banks. They want to do this. And for those who are uh, unaware, Bretton Woods was 
Uh, essentially, at the end of World War II, we got together and we decided that the U.S. dollar would be the global reserve currency and we'd peg it to gold. So the U.S. dollar is as good as gold. Everyone can use dollars. That's the new system. Right. And so the, they're calling for a new version of this. And Raul Paul's thesis, which I'm drawing on a lot here in, in this monologue, uh, Raul's thesis is that uh, the, the bank or 2.0 is going to come or an SDR, special drawing rights. And what this actually means is every country or the major countries will put all their central bank digital currencies together in an account and then they'll create a new token, one token to rule them all. And that will be like Bancor 2.0. That'll be global crazy coin. I don't know what they're going to call it. An index of fiat, right? Yeah, an index of this new money, the central bank money, but it's essentially an index on all state fiat. And what that's going to do is now all states can print money at the same time and what would happen is their foreign exchange rates will stay the same. Currently, if one country prints too much, that wrecks their foreign exchange rate, although it increases their imports or exports. Um, but essentially, everyone gets to print, which is what's needed, right? So we're going to go through a period of currency devaluation because the debt's too high, and this system just does that the best. It's the it's the least worst plan. And the same same with Bretton Woods at the end of World War II. Um, you could argue that these were the least least worst option at the time, but they come with a bunch of unintended consequences, which we're unraveling now. So that brings us to Bitcoin. Um, we're going to have the central bank, digital currency world, Bancor 2.0 type structure. And that's there's a lot of execution risk. Who's going to build that technology? It requires cooperation. There's all these unknowns. Um, next to that, you have Bitcoin. And it's just eating volatility and producing order. It's becoming more accepted left and right. And it actually has the qualities of a perfect settlement between nation states. And it's scarce, it's verifiable, it's durable, it's all those things. But most importantly is you don't have to trust your counterparty. So the US and Iran can do business, US and China can do business. And it doesn't matter because Bitcoin's out of, out of the control. You don't have to trust your enemy to use Bitcoin. And so due to those properties, um, it's actually positioned quite well. And so my vision of the future is that we're going to see Bancor 2.0. Um, and then I hope what actually happens is that Bitcoin eclipses that and it actually becomes the thing that is the, uh, the, the settlement medium between nation states. And if it times up nicely to the fourth turning, we're going to hit the apex here in 2030 on Bitcoin's 21st birthday. Think about that. It was born in 09. It was born three months after the beginning of the fourth turning started. It went through its adolescence through the craziest time in American history. It was hardened. It got better. It's anti-fragile. It's preparing right now. Mm -hmm. It's a teenager. It's just about to be a teenager. It's going to come of age during this battle. And then it's going to be 21 years old at the end of the fourth turning, emerging into a new period of prosperity. And I hope that it's Bitcoin that is the settlement reserve. And I hope it creates a strong foundation so which we can build. Do you mean to like, the framing I just got was that, you know, Bitcoin is a child of a turning just like the rest of us are, right? Like it fits into the story just like we as individuals do. It is itself an organism that experiences turnings just like the rest of us. Did you mean to, to make that that metaphor? I didn't mean to make it as elegantly as you just described it, but yeah, that's what I was aiming towards. Uh -huh. It is a product. Bitcoin right. is a product of the fourth turning. You know, it was it was molded by it. It grew mm -hmm. up that way. Mm -hmm. So here, 
here's something to think about too. And I really like the idea of thinking about, again, Bitcoin, you've, you've really pushed the idea of Bitcoin as an organism, Bitcoin as an organism aging through time. Uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin next year in the summer is going to pass the amount of trading hours that the S&P 500 has had, right? So like, imagine that lining up with what we're anticipating next summer, right? Like Bitcoin as an asset is about to become one of the most mature assets in the world in terms of trading hours, right? And like no cryptocurrency is going to catch up to it on that front, right? Mm. Like there, there's a future where Bitcoin is the most traded anything in the whole world by like modern trading hours um, metrics. Um, so it's just like, Sure. Second to gold. I mean, but again, gold is like a lot, very much has been kind of put in its place. Um, and it's very, but regardless, like, um, all of this stuff is kind of like adding up at once. And I mean, uh, we're, we're dealing with a 12 year old right now. Like Mm -hmm. I think people usually start fucking shit up when they're 21, 24, 25, 26, 27. Like that's when they start like making a, a difference. Well, when you hit puberty, you start to think about like, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? So I feel like that maybe that's what Bitcoin is figuring out right now. Or totally. we're figuring out what we want it to be when it grows up, right? As a population. Mm. It's kind of like more of like a, uh, whatever, a hive mind. And we're right. figuring out what to do with this thing. Right. Yeah. The, the Bitcoin is just the manifestation of that. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's right. an important point, though, which is that we're not out of the woods. Bitcoin is, has had it easy so far. And Bitcoiners like yeah. to say we've been attacked since day one. And that is also true because there's a bounty and come and get mm-hmm. it. Right. And so it's patched the bugs. It's got through the original hurdles or the initial hurdles. But there's a lot left to do. We have to right. figure out how this fits in as a regulatory framework. Right. It has to get a pass from the states or win a, right. win a war against the states the consciousness of people have to change. Luckily, mm-hmm. a lot can happen in five, 10 years. And what makes me the most bullish about this is that there are millions of Bitcoiners and the extended community around the world who find this to be the most important thing that they can work on, myself included, mm-hmm. who are willing to go to battle here. Mm-hmm. And this decentralized underground network mm-hmm. care. And yeah. so I would not bet against that group. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Nick Carter's piece comes to mind where he illustrates um, how people way back when were building a cathedral and the people that started building the cathedral never had any hopes of seeing it finished, but worked on it nonetheless. Yeah, definitely. Brandon, thanks for coming on at POV Crypto. I really appreciate you coming and sharing us with us. You're very... Uh, uh, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's hard to put abstract thoughts onto paper in, in ways that you do. And so I, I, f- I feel like those are the bricks that you are laying. So thank you for doing that, sir. I appreciate that. And I really appreciate you guys having me on. I feel the same with your writing, David, even though I'll send you some private comments where <laughs> I have a bone to pick. I do appreciate the writing and, and I, I see you doing the same kind of thing with the words. So Cheers. Um, as always, thanks guys. Peace. Wait, wait, before you jump off, where can people find you? Uh, what should they be looking up? Someone in the comments was complimenting your uh, mycelium piece. Appreciate that. Yeah, that was the step one. I don't want to be a, a mushroom guy forever. So I had to, you know, battle against my typecast and try to produce something unique. No, that's not really true. <laughs> um, but where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter. That's the best place at BQUITEM, BQUITTEM. Uh, I work at Swan. It's a great place to stack sats. 
auto DCA, just hook your bank account, set up your plan, 50 bucks a week, 500 bucks a month, whatever. And it just auto pulls and you can set up an auto withdrawal to your cold storage. Um, we have the lowest fees for this service. That's uh, only in the US. A lot of announcements coming soon. You can daily stack right now. So you can stack literally every single day, which is pretty cool. Um, and if any of these ideas are interesting to you, come say hello. Um, I'm trying to deeper understand the fourth turning and how it relates. And so every conversation I learned something. So reach out on Twitter, come say hi. Brandon, tell me you guys are working on like a credit or debit card that rounds up and buys the rest with Bitcoin. Is that a thing? That's because I've wanted that for so long. There actually are a few in the US right now, like the Acorns model. I'm not sure where it is. The hard part is the transaction costs. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, okay. it's an interesting point, but I think under the, the hurdles with this uh, first churning fiat money system make mm -hmm. that really difficult. However, some sort of a, a lightning network model of that would be extremely easy to do. Right, 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 right. Awesome. Just had to get well, that last question in there. Well, speaking of a card similar to that, um, there is a full debit card that's about to come out, which is a debit card that gives you sats back on your spending and like anywhere from like two to five percent sats back and then on top of that whatever you like keep inside the app i think i saw a rumor that's going to pay out 10 percent apy on on the sats that you just keep in there so i mean th that's pretty cool for a centralized uh card so check that out and if you do that on bitcoinblackfriday.com and you sign up from there uh you can get a you can be entered into a chance to win an entire bitcoin so an entire um, bitcoin one whole Bitcoin. So, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't pass up that opportunity to drop that plug since we were talking about stats back cards. So yeah, BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Get that big whole Bitcoin and get your stats back with the fold card. All right, All right. guys. Yeah, close this out, Christian. Yeah, let let's one last show. Uh, find me at CK underscore Snarks. Find me at Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, find the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. Make sure to give us reviews. Make sure to share the show on Twitter. Make sure to do all of those things. David. You can find me at Trustless State both on Twitter and on Bankless. Thanks, everyone. All right. Peace.